we continue a rather topical, or if you don't mind, systematic, maybe, maybe that's too a grandiose term, a topical approach toward the doctrine of the church. We've studied the nature of the church, what is the church to be in this world as we meet together. We've talked about church membership, the, the value of church membership. We've talked about the need, the very much need of church discipline. Uh, this morning is a study on Christ's role or Christ's activity within the church. What is, wh- where is he? How do we see him? How do we see him even active in the church? And then and a kind of follow-up to that, his status or his situation in, this, in, this, in his body, the church, then how does he mediate his authority? Or how, how is Christ evident in the life of a church? And how do we honor God in that way? And that really will lead us into our, our study for next time and maybe the next two times on the, uh, the organization or the leadership of the church and particularly pastors, pastors, elders, overseers. But to look at this idea, we'll be turning around in Scripture quite a ways, but we, we start from Matthew 16, where we looked at a few weeks ago, but Christ promised that he would build his church. Matthew 16 and verse 18, again, the only two references, well, two, three times the word church is used in the Gospels, and they're all in Matthew, and their first time is in Matthew 16. So when we talk about Christ's role toward the church, one of the first ones we think of is that he is the builder. He is the builder. Uh, Matthew 16 and verse 18 says, I will build my church. He talks, talking to Peter, just kind of jumping right into the context here. I will build my church. And so we have that confidence that he himself is doing it. It's not delegating it to other people ultimately. And so he's stepping back and has nothing to do with it anymore. No, he says, I, I will build my church. Even if we jump to the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, he says, all authority has been granted to me. And he says, go therefore and do these things. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's a promise. It's not a, it's not a, yeah, we know Jesus is with us. He's with with us in heart. No, he's actually with us. And you think, whoa, how does that even work? We'll see as we, as we go along here. But he says, I will build it. I will build my church. I will be the one who has the design for it. I will be the one who sustains it. I'll be the one that is the target or the, the blueprint, if you will, because it's his body after all. He wants his body to be filled out to, to the headship of Christ as we'll look at in Ephesians 4 in just a little bit too. Lots of things yet to come. I don't want to get too much ahead of myself. But he says, I will build, whose church is it? Somebody else's church. I'm working on somebody else's project. I'm just a general contractor over here. I don't know what's going on and things fall apart. It's their fault. No, it's his church. It is his church he's building. It's his assembly, his congregation of believing people, saved, regenerate people. One thing about that phrase, I didn't reference it yet. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Many things we could consider about that thing, but if you jump down to verse 21, Matthew 16 and verse 21, this idea of gates of Hades is really a euphemism, if you can say it in a good way, but it's, a, it's another statement, another way to refer to death. And whose death? What death are we talking? Christ's death. I think ultimately, primarily. Now there are other deaths as well, because the church is, as we looked at earlier, a few weeks ago, the church spans time. It expands, spans from time into eternity. So death has no bearing, really. Those who are in Christ are sealed in the Holy Spirit, have that confidence. But I think specifically on his mind anyway, even though I am going to death, he says, verse 21, the church will 
will survive and thrive. From that time on, verse 21 says, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So when he's talking about the gates of Hades, and it's referenced many other times in Job and in in, uh, Psalm 107, verse 18, about the gates of not Hades or Sheol, but the gates of death and the gates of uh, death itself, that, that uh, these Christ's promise to build will not be undone by his death. In fact, that's what establishes the church. It's based on his death, burial, and resurrection that we have any kind of identity with him. Another role that he has in or toward the church is that he is the cornerstone. Ephesians 2, verses 19, or beginning at verse 19, speaks about this. And in the context, it, he's really jumping between two different ways of thinking about the church. He's talking about a body. He's talking about a building. He's talking about a a building for a house or a a building for a household. But then he's talking about the household itself, the people who dwell in the building. So the kind of lot of different images are being uh, portrayed here in Ephesians 2. But in, in verse 19 and following... He says, you are no longer strangers and sojourners, you Gentiles. Uh, You are now fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. So we're talking about the household, the members, the people members of, of God's household. But then he has the image now of a building. Verse 20 says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so we've gone from thinking about us as being part of God's own family, drawn near, adopted as sons, and now saying, well, he is the place where Christ himself dwells. Verses 21 and 22 say, in whom the whole building being joined together and growing is growing into a holy sanctuary or temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. Wow. So we have this idea of a body, also the citizenship, you know, national citizenship identity with a bunch of people. But then the building, the the people in the building. Wow, we are brought near. But notice that Christ himself is the cornerstone, that which he's identified elsewhere differently. But the cornerstone is something that the foundation of the building and right at the kind of a, a very important aspect of the building is that foundation and the corner it needs to be strong and secure. And he is that cornerstone. He is the one who has the preeminence. I won't turn to it, but you can write this down. First Peter 2 verses 4 through 8 also refer to Christ as the cornerstone. And he's quoting, Peter is quoting from Psalm 118 in that context of the stone which the builders rejected has become the very cornerstone also from Isaiah 28 verse 16. But so Peter also uses that image of Christ being the one who is central to the identity, to the livelihood, to the safety, security, the establishment, the permanence of the church as the cornerstone. He is the savior. Jesus is the savior of his body. Acts 20 and verse 28, Paul has is taking his last well, what he expects to be his last conversation with the, with the elders in the city of Ephesus, to the church at Ephesus, again, the church in which or to which or for which he served the longest time of any, of any congregation. He was in Ephesus for three years. And so he had great conversation, great interaction with these people. He knew them. He knew them by face. He knew them by family. He knew these people. And so he says in his farewell address, Acts 20, I won't read all of it beginning in verse 17, but verse 28 says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. 
Again, we, there's so many, stuff, so many things he men- mentions there, but it's the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He is the savior. He is the savior of the body. He laid down his life for the holiness, for the redemption of his people. He purchased with his own blood, or if you don't mind, the, the blood of his own one. Because if you notice that, it said, where did it go here? It's the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Did God the father die? God the father did not die. God the son died. But wait a minute, you're talking about the church of God, which he, which would seem to indicate he being God, God purchased with God's own blood. God did not have, you know, God the Father did not have a body to die and suffer, but God the Son did, and God the Son, Jesus, did die for his church. And so we see that he is, Christ is the Savior of the body. Ephesians 5, in that context of mutual submission, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ, wives to your husbands, as to the Lord. Husbands, you love your wives as Christ loved the church. Verse 23 says, Ephesians 5, 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. There's not another savior. There's not another, as as much as we would want to honor Paul and Peter and and some of these other people or some more contemporary preachers, teachers of the Bible, they're not the savior of the church. Sometimes they're they're the troublemakers in the church, some of these contemporary preachers anyway. But Christ himself is the savior, the one who, the redeemer, the one who has bought back, has rescued that bunch of people from sin, from condemnation. He himself is that savior. Colossians 1, we studied in our, in our recent study through Colossians verse uh, 13 and 14, speaks about the redemption we have in Christ. Verse 14, the forgiveness of sins. I mean, that's really, that's really what we need. It's nice enough to meet needs, you know, practical needs. It's nice enough to be an encouraging word in a, in a world where discouragement and criticism and picking on each other is just rampant. But we don't need just that. We need forgiveness of sins. We need God to forgive us. We need to have a righteousness, not based on our own performance, but based on Christ, a redemption, a, a, a justification by grace through faith that we celebrate and we have through Christ. And so Jesus himself is the savior of the church. He's the mediator. And you think, wait a minute, a mediator really assumes that there's a problem. Is there a problem between us? And we would say that to God. God, is there a problem between us? I mean, I, I'm a good person. I've done all these things, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, there's a problem with me, with you. You're a sinner. You're depraved. You reject me. You rebel against me, all these things. But you can be saved. Well, how can I be saved? How can I do this? There's a mediator. There's one who makes peace between two opposing parties, right? Two, two people. I have an issue with you. You have an issue with me. And Christ is that one. He has come to help these parties at war with each other come to some uh, peace, some arrangement between them. Christ has offered himself. First uh, Peter chapter 2 speaks about this mediation between God and man. First Peter, or excuse me, First Timothy chapter 2 beginning at verse 5 says, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, some people would say, oh, he's really emphasizing that Jesus is man. He's only man. No, he is the God-man. He's the one who is able to mediate, representing both God in the formula or the, the arrangement, and man in the arrangement. And not sinful man, but a perfect, God-fearing, sinless, righteous man. God-man together is able to establish that peace, to establish that reconciliation. The one man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the witness for this proper time. Christ is the one who brings peace, who negotiates this thing. 
And he fulfilled the terms of the agreement. He is the one who, who, again, lived a perfect life before the Father and offered himself as a substitute, as, as the law of Moses portrayed. Um, we even read it in First Samuel a little bit about the, the offerings that the people would give to the Lord for sin and for thanksgiving and different things. Always a substitute. God did not require human sacrifice. That's a, a yuck thing that the, the nations did. But when Christ himself died for our sin, he died in our place. He is the one who, better than the bulls and goats and, and all, the, all the animal sacrifices, even grain offerings and, and, and wine and, and oil and salt and different things, Christ offered his own life, his own uh, body for that sacrifice to fulfill God's righteousness. Somebody's got to die for sin. I mean, the, the blood of bulls and goats pointed to Christ himself being that mediator, that sacrificial lamb of God slain for us, for us. And so Christ is mediator. Uh, many times in Hebrews, that word mediator is used. You can look up uh, yourself. A prophet. Jesus is a prophet. He is the one who represents or speaks God's word to his people. Now, a lot of times the people don't want to listen to that message. You think of how the prophets were treated in the Old Testament. And yet God is always, he has not left himself without a witness in this world. He is one who speaks and speaks and speaks. And and we stop up our ears a lot of times. And I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear it. But Moses, who is considered the greatest prophet, I mean, he, he wrote five books, Tremendous, the law of Moses, all these things. He is the prophet. Uh, Others as well, Elijah, Elisha, all these other ones. But when Moses in Deuteronomy 18, you can write that down, but we'll see where it's referenced in the New Testament. In Deuteronomy 18, he says, God will raise up another prophet. You listen to him. You be careful to listen to him. Now, who was that prophet? We see prophets all throughout. We see multiple prophets. We have books named after prophets, right? The major prophets, the minor prophets. But in Acts In chapter 3, we see that the prophet being referred to is Christ himself. Moses was looking forward to that time, that coming of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus himself is that prophet. Peter, preaching in Acts 3, beginning at verse 22, says... Moses said, so he's quoting Moses from Deuteronomy 18, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. To him you shall listen in everything he says to you. And it'll be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. So who's he talking about? Jesus. He's talking about Jesus himself, that Christ is that one, the prophet of which Moses was referring, the prophet that is the one bringing uh, peace and life and the one who... uh, what you do with Moses is one thing, and what you do with Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah, that's, that's one thing. But what you, I mean, that's a separate issue. But what you do with Christ, that determines your future, your eternal destiny. What you do with Jesus, the prophet. Now, he's more than a prophet. In fact, when he, Jesus refers to himself as a prophet, but more in a, maybe not a mocking tone, uh, a forlorn, kind of a, a disappointed message. Remember when he says in Matthew 13, verse 57, excuse me, they were taking offense at him because of what he was saying. But Jesus said, hey, a prophet is not without honor, which is to say a prophet has no honor in his hometown, in his hometown, oh, in his hometown and in his own household. A prophet is not honored in that regard. And so he says, I've come to my own people. John 1 says, 
My people didn't listen to me. My people didn't draw near to me. They rejected me. And yet those who God did grant repentance to, they became the sons of God. And so he says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. A similar statement he makes in Luke 13 that it's, it's impossible. It's not possible that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. And you think, wait a minute, Jesus is referring to, his, to himself as a prophet. He says, it's just how it's done. All the prophets seem to have been killed in Jerusalem, so I've got to go up to Jerusalem to fulfill that even. He, he speaks of it in a, in a rather, not a desperate sense, but a sad sense that I am God's messenger, really. Hebrews 1, right? The last word, the final word came through his son, prophets in all these different ways, but Christ himself is that one. And he says, they don't listen to me and they're going to kill me just like the rest of the prophets. But he, Jesus, is the ultimate prophet. He is recognized by so many people throughout his ministry as a prophet. This is a prophet from from God, from Nazareth and Galilee, Matthew 21, verse 11, and other places as well. He's, He's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old, people say. When Jesus asked the question, back in our context in Matthew 16, who do men say that I am? Uh, Elijah, whatever, some of the, one of the prophets, I don't know. Yes, and more than a prophet, more like Solomon, but more than Solomon, greater than Solomon. And so saying he's a prophet does not demean him. It elevates him as being the final prophet, the most ultimate authoritative prophet that God could ever send to his people is Jesus, the one who speaks God's word. He is high priest. He is the priest, the one who, if a prophet were one to represent God to man, a priest is one who represents man to God, the one who, again, stands as a mediator, not based on his own personal sacrifice. Christ himself is the savior of the body. The high priests in the Old Testament were not saviors in that sense. They pointed to the savior, Christ, because of the whole system there, the repentance, humility, the substitutionary sacrifices. Christ himself is the high priest who ministers his own body, who sacrifices his own body on behalf of his church. So much. And most of this references in Hebrews where he, where the author there talks about the, the, uh, the priesthood, the priestly service of the Lord Jesus. Uh, for example, Hebrews 4 and verse 14 says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us take hold of our confession. For we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, like we are yet without sin. So we can draw near, and so forth. It goes on. It says in Hebrews 9 that when Jesus came to do that work of a high priest, he did not say, okay, bulls and goats, I need a lot because there's a lot of sin I need to take care of, a lot of sin to atone for. Come on, bulls and goats. He did not bring a single bull, goat, lamb, pigeon, anything like that. He came in, he entered that holy place down a little bit farther. It says, for if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. He, that sacrifice, will cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Christ made a difference. Peter talks about that, that the difference. You're not saved by, by goats and bulls and the blood of all these things, but through Christ, the precious Son of God who died in our place. When Jesus appears in, excuse me, in Revelation chapter 1, when John sees him, and he sees him in all of his glory and everything like that, he sees him dressed in a robe. This is Revelation 1, 13. He's clothed in a robe, reaching down to the feet, and he's girded with a sash, 
like a, a, a banner right across his chest, a golden sash, it says. That is a picture of priestly garments, a robe. You can read about Aaron's robe in Psalm 133. He talks about that. When the oil comes down upon, unity is like the oil that comes, comes down on Aaron's head, reaching down to the, to the garment, to the robe, robe, robal garment. Is that a, even an adjective? No, it's not. Uh, the robe that, that Aaron wore. And then the sash that the priests wore as well. You can read about that in Exodus and also Leviticus. It speaks about that. But he is the high priest, the one who represents man to God. He is the king. He is the king. He is the one who has the right to rule. He has the identity as king, ruler, despot, uh, in a good way, not in a nasty human way, but in a godly way. He is the one who is king. Colossians 1, getting the, going back to that passage where we talked about redemption, the forgiveness of sins, which we have in Christ. We also have been transferred out of the domain of darkness or the authority of darkness and into the kingdom of his son. Jesus is king. He is the king over that kingdom. Revelation 1.5 says, he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and father. Uh, Revelation later, 17 and verse 14, and then again in in, uh, Revelation 19, verse 16, talks about Jesus Christ being the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is the one over all earthly kings, over all angelic authority. We don't even know all the the, uh, situation there in the angelic realm, but he is the King of kings. He is the one who has that ultimate right to rule, and he is Lord of lords. These same passages speak of that. Even as I mentioned, Matthew 28 at the end of the end of the letter says, all authority has been granted to me. If you want to make some distinction between king and Lord, I don't know that we could drive a, a, a schism between those two words. They're really very united. But I suppose if you were to, to try to differentiate them, you could think as the king is the the right, the kingly right to rule. And that might be argued, for example, that Jesus is a descendant of David. He does have a right to rule based on his, his genealogical record. But he also has the authority. It, it's one thing to have the right to rule, but what if, if you're like the, what do they call the Dauphin, the, the French um, prince who, you know, his king was, his father was killed back in the revolutionary days, French Revolution. He had the right to rule, but he had no authority, right? Christ is both, has the, the right to rule and the authority to rule. There's no question. Those, those two things are inseparably, con- inseparably connected in Christ. There is one Lord, Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5, 4, 5 says, and elsewhere it says as well. And so he, we ought to listen to him. He is the king and he is the Lord. A final idea here. Actually, not a final idea. Several more. Sorry. There are 13 ideas here. And there are more that I could have brought, but these are the, are the big ones for, for right now. He is the head of his body. We looked at this from um, Ephesians, I believe, verses uh, chapter 1. He is the head of his body. Uh, the church, Ephesians 5.23 says, Christ is the head of the, of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. All throughout the scripture, the New Testament anyway, this church is described as the body of Christ. We have this identity and we want to be filled out into his head. You know, there, there was a time that, that when, you, when you're an infant or you have infants around you that I mean, probably the largest thing on their body is their head, right? And you just hope that their body will grow to fit their head at some point down the, down the future. Christ himself is that glorious, beautiful, perfect head. And then we look at the body down below. Ah, oh, just kind of 
doing this thing by the power of the Holy Spirit, trying to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But we want to be fitted out to, to match our glorious connection with, or excuse me, our, our connection with the glorious head, which is Christ himself. And so we want to honor him. We want to receive our life from the head with Christ himself. He is the one who uh, leads the, the church. He's the one who makes the decisions for the church. He calls the shots for the church. We don't make things up on ourselves. We follow his order, follow his design for us. He is the one that uh, we represent. We, you know, we go out into the world. We don't represent the elbow. We represent the head. Isn't it interesting as we talk, humans, even animals, you know, when we talk to each other, we're not focusing on the, on the ankle. That's an, and we're talking to the people, and I'm just looking at your ankle. And that's awkward. We don't do that. We look at the eyes because that's the entrance to the soul. But we look at the head when we're talking to each other. Don't look at the ear. I mean, try that after, we, after our meeting ends and just look at the ear of somebody you're talking to. Oh, just look at me. Slap the face. And we... We, we honor the head because that is so important. That's what receives glory. That's what we want to honor. And so all throughout Matthew 23 talks about don't, don't be called rabbi. Nah. For one is your teacher and you're all brothers. And don't let anyone call, you on, call anyone on earth your father. For one is your father. He was in heaven. This is Matthew 23, 8 through 11. Do not be called instructors or teachers. For one is your instructor. That is Christ. But the greatest among you shall serve, or excuse me, the greatest among you shall be your servant. In other words, all glory goes to Christ, our head. All glory goes to him alone. And we want as his body to fill out the beauty that he is in our lives and in the whole world. That idea of Christ being the head of the body is mentioned many times in Colossians uh, verses uh, 17 and 18 says he's the body of the church. Excuse me. He is the head of the body of the church. Uh, Later in chapter 2 he says uh, he is the head over all rule and authority. So not just head over the church but he's head over everything in this whole universe. Later in Colossians 2 Paul has harsh words for the false teachers there in Colossae. He says, they don't hold fast the head. They're not connected. They're trying to do things on their own set. They're commanding things. That, that Where is that in Scripture? Where did Jesus, where does that honor Scripture, honor, honor Christ? No, that, they make that up for their own glory, for their own aggrandizement. Don't. They're not connected to the head. Elsewhere, we could, we could look about the headship of Christ. But he is also judge. He is also judge of the church. Wait a minute. No, I thought we've, we've escaped judgment. Yes, the judgment, the great white throne judgment. Yes, praise the Lord, we are escaped from that. But you know that he is the judge who judges righteously. We will give an account to him for how we conducted our lives, what kind of words we spoke, what kind of things we sought after, the the desire, the affections of our heart. We will give an account to him. Do you remember, I didn't focus on it too much because we kind of looked rapidly through it last week in the church discipline idea, Matthew 18, that you know, if your brother sins, rebuke him and so forth and goes on. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as the Gentile and the tax collector. And, he, and Jesus in verse 20 says, if two of you agree on anything, then all this, and I am with you. I am there in your midst. And we often use that in relation to prayer meetings and so forth, but it's really in the context of judgment, of correcting the church. Christ is there handling conflict, being that great and supreme judge. Leaders in the church, that again, we'll talk about next time. Uh, Your leaders, Hebrews 13, 17, your leaders that are speaking the word of God to you and so forth. In the middle of that verse, it says, they keep watch over your soul as those who will give an account. Give an account to whom? To the church? No, I mean, yes, but ultimately to Christ, the owner, the master, the Lord, the king, the head of the church. You'll give an account 
leaders, elders, pastors, overseers will give an account of their service to the Lord. And so he has some words there in Hebrews 13, how we ought to conduct ourselves. Paul had a great expectation. Paul, at the end of his life, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, very nearly to his death, as he expected, at the hand of, of Nero, Emperor Nero, he said, uh, 2 Timothy 4, uh, 6 through 8, but in that, in that course of it, he says, the Lord, the righteous judge. And we think, well, I thought we escaped judgment. There's no condemnation, right, for those who are in Christ Jesus, but there still is going to be a judgment, a, re- a review, a board of review. Back when I was in Boy Scouts, we had a board of review. Did you really earn this merit badge or this, this whatever? Well, we're going to review. Just make sure that you really did do the work and so forth. Christ himself is that righteous judge, and you can't you know, smoke and mirrors, you can't confuse them. You, you know, watch what this hand is doing. Uh, Christ rules righteously and judges righteously. He will award certain things, a crown of righteousness here in this context, to all that have loved his appearing. Those who have just yearned for him, love, want Christ to come back and have it as our, this world is not my home. I appreciate the different things that God entrusts to us to manage and care for and enjoy in this world. Christ is my life. Christ is the one that I am oriented toward. I didn't highlight here, but when we talk about the Messiah, the role of Messiah, we usually refer to these three of these terms. Now, all of them apply to Jesus, of course, but he, we, we often talk, of, talk about Messiah as the prophet, the priest, and the king. And we see that. Jesus is the prophet, the priest, and the king. And, and those were separate offices in the Old Testament time period. A priest who acted like a king or a king who acted like a priest, they were judged. You can't do that. You, you cannot do that. But Christ does it. Why? Because he's perfect. Because he's the God-man. Christ himself is that perfect representation of God to man, of man to God, and the one who has the right to rule over all these things. Christ himself is God in the flesh and who will be honored and glorified forever and ever to the praise of God the Father. I think two more ideas here. I don't remember how many we have. There are 13 total. So whatever this one is. Uh, the firstborn, this is 11. Yeah. So the firstborn among many brethren. This is a, a phrase kind of just, it's not a throwaway phrase, but it's only used once, I think, in the, in the scriptures. That's Romans 8, verse 29. We know Romans 8, 28, but you know there's a verse after that. Of course, Romans 8, 28 says, God will work everything out for good. Please, God. For those who loved him, love him, and are called according to his purpose, because, verse 29 says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brothers. We think we can call Jesus our brother as well. I mean, we could add that to our, our Christ's roles toward the church. He's our brother. But he is the firstborn, not just chronologically or in terms of time. He's the first one. So I guess, you know, pride of place, all that. No, he is the one that everything else orients itself to. He is the one that, that has first place, even if he was not chronologically born, which he wasn't. I mean, good grief. Adam was formed first. Jesus is the last Adam, but he is the firstborn. He's the one who has preeminence. He has the authority over all things. In some regard, these last three terms here really relate to the terms used of, in a lesser way, definitely a lesser way, but refer to the the office of elder, pastor, overseer, leaders, the shepherds of the church. And this idea of firstborn, again, it's not a one-to-one relation, but does give a a, a suggestion as to what is the place of elders in the life of a church. 
not a place of honor and prestige and, and we need to bow down and kiss their feet and the dust that they walk on we'll, we'll take and collect and you know, put it on our shelf and, and worship it. No, not anything like that. But they are the ones who are out front. They are the leaders. They're the ones who are exemplary in their life and their conduct. We'll look at these things in First Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and First Peter 5. These requirements, uh, qualifications, we usually refer to them as it's not that they are somehow special, uh, more, more spiritual, uh, ultimately, you know, a different class of spirituality. No, it's the same vein of spirituality, maybe just a little bit farther ahead. That's one of the reasons why elders should be a little bit older than just your, your even First Timothy 3, 7, I think it says, not a new convert, not a neophyte, one who is newly planted, you know, lest he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Make sure he is a little bit more mature in the faith so that he'd be an example to those in the, in the flock. Hebrews 13, 7 says that same idea. So Jesus being the elder, Jesus being the firstborn, excuse me, the firstborn from the dead, the firstborn of everything, has that preeminent place in the life of the church. He is the shepherd. He's described as the chief shepherd. He is described as the senior or, or you know, overarching shepherd. And this is not just a New Testament idea. Isaiah chapter 40 says, the Lord Yahweh will come with strength with his arm, Isaiah 40 verse 10, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will shepherd his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Christ is that one. Of course, Isaiah 40, that's the message that John the Baptist preached, you know, making a straight path for the Lord in the wilderness. And all these things are going on as leading to Christ, who is that one shepherd, that one who is so gentle, so uh, uh, definite, though, leading his, his, these nursing ewes and, and gently carrying the, the lambs in his bosom. And we see him referred to repeatedly. I'd love to look at all these references. But John 10, Jesus speaks of himself as the good shepherd. Uh, he speaks to his sheep. They, they, they know him. They recognize him. They listen to him. They follow him. Uh, he's the one who lays down his life for the sheep. So Jesus being the chief shepherd or the good shepherd, or if you don't mind, the pastor. Jesus is the pastor of the church. First uh, Peter 2 verse 25 uses these two terms, not well, this term and the one that we'll see uh, next, uh, to refer to Jesus. First Peter 2.25 says, You were continually straying like sheep. Which, by the way, doesn't that describe us pretty well? You're continually straying like sheep, but now you've returned. You'll probably stray again, but return to Jesus. Return to the shepherd or pastor and overseer of your souls. Christ himself is that one. Christ is just so central to the life of the church. And we think, yeah, it's church Jesus, but we're going to do this over here. By what authority? Where are you getting your decision-making process from? If you're doing something contrary to the head, the ruler, the king, the savior, the body, what are you doing? You cannot call yourself a church. By the way, I didn't reference this back when we talk about Jesus as judge. Hebrews, two, or excuse me, Revelation 2 and 3, what's he doing? He's judging his churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Laodicea, all those churches in between. He is saying, I, this, you know, this is good about you, but this I have against you. You better change. You better repent. Remember, repent, and do, he says of Revelation 2 and verse 4. You better get back in line because you are out of order. So Jesus is a good and righteous judge. He is the pastor, the shepherd, the one who leads us together. Remember, 
back in Acts 20, 28, talked about the uh, church of God, but it says to shepherd, to pastor, to lead, to care for this church, which he purchased with his own blood. Jesus is called the, the senior pastor, the chief shepherd in 1 Peter 5 and verse 4. When the, the, the chief shepherd, the senior pastor appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's the expectation we have, not just for, for um, well, I was going to say this. It's in the context of elders, the leaders of the church, that will have that unfading crown of glory granted them. But thankfully, like Paul said back in 2 Timothy 4, God grants a crown of righteousness to all who have loved his appearing. So again, it's not that the pastors are any different than the rest, just a little bit farther and entrusted with a, a sacred task, over, you know, shepherding, guiding, leading, giving, uh, having charge over your souls, being concerned about the soul issues of, of the flock and the, the congregation, wanting to see Christ honored in their lives is the burden of these, these shepherds. A final idea here is that Jesus is that overseer. We saw it here in 1 Peter 2, verse 25. He is the overseer of your souls. That's the word often translated bishop. Yeah, and we'll look at that next week more carefully. But he is the one who is, I think these three ideas, by the way, elder, pastor, overseer, really combine the idea of the character of the, of the persons that lead, the attitude or the heart perspective that elders, pastors, overseers need. It's a shepherding, pastoral concern, not a authoritative, you've been my way or the highway kind of thing, but it does have some overseership, some, some uh, administration, some leading, some, okay, this is God's word. Let's, let's try to, let's organize ourselves to do, to fulfill these things. So there are these three different aspects, but character, attitude, or, or manner, and then the mode of the, of the uh, government of the pastors that we'll look at next time. Quickly though, here to wrap up our time, how does Christ's authority, identity, his role with the church, how does that work out then in the life of the church? Well, because pastors like to have alliterative sermons, there are three P's, and P seems to be the predominant pattern of preaching, if you don't mind my going out. Anyway, so the promise of, of Christ being in his church, he has promised these things. And what is that promise? It's the new covenant. The new covenant we talk all about, and the promise is centered in Scripture and His Spirit. God's Word and God's own Spirit enlivening people. Where, again, I'd love to trace this out the, the new covenant, when Christ is promising, God, Yahweh, there's promising this new covenant, preached about so many different times. We'll just look at Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Yahweh says, Days are coming. You better get ready. This is what's going to happen. I will cut a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This is Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Not like the old covenant. My covenant, uh, which I will cut, he says, I will put my law within them. So my word, my scripture, I will put it within them. And on their heart, I will write it. I will be their God and they'll be my people and they will not need to teach each other and so forth. So we see the emphasis, the, the importance of God's own word, his scripture in our hearts. Not just, you remember back in Deuteronomy 6, these words which I'm commanding you today should be on your hearts. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Wait a minute. Is it teach the children diligently? No, it's teach the scriptures diligently. Just clarification. And they should, you know, write them on the doorpost, put them on as frontlets on your face. But it's not just outside in our outside facing thing or even in our, in our, you know, something that we put on our bodies. Christ will write that word on our hearts. That's the promise of the new covenant. Having his heart, his word within our hearts that we have the 
the promise that his scripture comes right down into our lives, comes right, right down into our, our, uh, our very identity and becomes our meditation. As David, man after God's own heart, meditated upon God's word day and night. Psalm 1, Psalm 19, Psalm 119, and other psalms as well focus on the role of the scriptures, God's own word in the heart, the life of the people. Psalm 37, verse 31 says, The law of God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that be wonderful to always, always, always have God's word in our hearts so that whenever a situation we come with, we know God says this about it. You know, this situation happens. Well, I know my, my protocol, my design, my, you know, if, if this button goes or light go, turns off or on in the control module, right, in the, in the Apollo, whatever mission, or in a helicopter or a jet plane, you know, you have a routine, a protocol. Follow the, follow the protocol. You'll, you'll know it. How do we know the protocol? Read the book. How do we know what God wants us to do? Read his book. God says part of the new covenant, the scripture itself, will be in our hearts. Ezekiel 36, another statement of that new covenant. Scripture, yes. Holy Spirit enables us. Ezekiel 36, verse 27 says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Oh, good. I need all the help I can get. And you will be careful to do my judgments. The Spirit and the Scripture are so inextricably tied together. It's part of the New Covenant, which, for which we're very thankful. And we see that evidence, and I've mentioned this before, the, the parallel idea of Ephesians 5, 18, and Colossians 3, 16. Be filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Colossians 3, 16. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Those are the same ideas stated from different perspectives. The scripture, the spirit, the spirit, spirit, the scripture brought together as a fulfillment of the new covenant. God's authority, Christ's authority is mediated through his people. And this is so profound. And to, to reflect on the fact that, wow, Christ, it really does matter how we relate to each other, how we interact with each other, how we speak to another, how we're concerned for one another. We're part of one another. We're in the same body, right? Um, Ephesians, we should turn to Ephesians because that's really a, a prevailing passage uh, to ponder. There we go. Had to get the P's in there again. Ephesians 4, verses 11 and following. Oh, man. Well, just look at verse 15 and 16. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, that is Christ. So we want to fill out that beautiful head from whom the whole body, being joined and held together by what every joint supplies according to the properly measured working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Wow. In other words, love, not just an, a, a sentimental feeling, an emotional thing, but a decision to selflessly seek the best interest of other people, sacrificially even, seeking what's best for other people. That is what causes the, the growing up of the body. Using the resources that God has entrusted to me, he's given me gifts, he's given me abilities, given me experiences in my life to be a blessing to other people. When we come together as a church, it's not, well, what can I get out of it? You haven't done this, you haven't done that. Well, excuse me, what have you done? I mean, you're, you're looking at me and saying, well, you didn't do this, you missed that, you, good grief, I can't even, what are you do, What are you contributing to this congregation? You think, well, I'm just a, sitting in the, I was going to say pews, we have nice chairs. What is your role? Speaking the truth. What does it say, verse 15? Speaking the truth in love. Well, I thought the speaking only happens through the microphones. No. The conversations happen. 
before, during, probably not during, unless it's apparent to a child, uh, and after the meeting of the church. And that is where the building up of itself happens. You all have gifts. I don't have those gifts. We need each other. We need this body together to cause the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And so ministering to one another, back up one book, Colossians, or excuse me, Galatians chapter 5. How does God work through people? Again, bringing together the Spirit of God and the Scripture, the Word of God, right down into the nitty-gritty of life. Galatians 5 really discusses, the last part of it anyway, discusses don't walk according to the flesh. That's wickedness. That's destruction. Verses 19 and, and 20 and 21 say, you know, those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't act like the world. What should we act like? What should we do? Because we are regenerate, because we're born again, you bear forth or bear the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Um, against such things there is no law, he says. And he's, and so, and, but notice verse 24 and 25 and 26. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have, or Christ Jesus, crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So I have subjected myself for the advancement of other people. It's not about me. It's not what I want. It's what I want what you want. I want what, what establishes your best interest, the thing that will cause you to grow in Christ. And he says, verse 25 here, uh, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk in step with the Spirit. Let us not become those who, or excuse me, those with vainglory, challenging one another, envying one another. Wait a minute, what, how, where does that even come from? But did you notice, in terms of these relationships we have, did you notice that the fruit of the Spirit all has to do with relationships? love in relationships, joy and receiving and giving joy, um, peace in relationships, human relationship peace, not just peace with God, yes, but peace with each other, patience with one another, long suffering, kindness to one another, goodness to one another, faithfulness to one another, gentleness to one another, self-control, putting myself down, not in a demeaning kind of way, but in a, in a very practical way, not think of my own needs, but thinking of the other people. Philippians 2, 1 through 11, whoa. Uh, Self-control, really on display there. But it has to do with relationships. How is Christ's authority mediated through his church? The way that we relate to one another. So it really does depend on, or excuse me, the health of the church, the life of the church, but how Christ is manifested in church really depends on how I'm treating my neighbor, how I'm treating my sister, my brother in Christ. The relationships we have really matter eternally. And so we need to be very careful. Don't, don't walk in the flesh. I mean, good, good grief. You want to look at those things back in verse 19? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strifes, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and all the other stuff. It's wicked. Don't be guilty of those things. Don't bring that into the church. Do these other things for God's glory. Christ himself is our life. We ought to live connected to our head, building out the glory of our head. Colossians 2, 19 says about that, not holding fast to the head. Colossians 3, 3 and 4 says, you died, you died, and your life has been hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life. Well, I thought that was just, you know, Jesus loves me. No, he is our life. 
He's for whom we live. He is the one who empowers our life. He's the one who said, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm sending my spirit, not another spirit. My own spirit will be with you. The spirit of God is the spirit of Christ indwelling us. The spirit of Christ is what gives us the strength, the ability, the, the desire, the passion to respond to God in a, in a wholehearted way. Did we read it this morning when, G, when Jesus says to the lady at the well in Samaria that um, a time is coming when, when you don't worship on this mountain or the mountain Jerusalem, but you will worship, the Father seeks those who worship him in spirit and in truth. A lot of conversation about that. But one way to think of it is in spirit and truth. Truth, of course, is the scriptures, worshiping God according to his, his character and, and the, the protocols that he has. But the spirit, and we can say, well, that's the Holy Spirit. No, no. That's the spirit, like inner man spirit. Mm, maybe. I think John is really talking about the, remember we talked about worshipful wonder out of Acts 2 that ought to characterize the church. That worshipful affection toward God, the spirit of, of desire to see God glorified in my life, a spirit that draws near to him in adoration and praise and humility. I, I'm nothing, but God is everything. That's what Jesus is getting after, worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And we do that. We recognize, I've got nothing, but Jesus is everything. He is that one to whom we have everything uh, to do. He is he's everything to us. We see Jesus mediates his authority through promise, people, the last word, which I'm not going to emphasize this today. It's going to be next time. Pastors. God leads and mediates his authority through pastors. Again, elders, pastors, overseers. It's not to say that they're somehow special, a different breed of Christian. No, they're just Christian people trying to do the best they can according to God's wonderful power. But they have a specific role to mediate Christ's pastorship, his senior pastor, pastorship in the life of a local congregation. So next week we'll look at that idea of pastors. But again, Christ is alive and well. He, he's not just over, you know, over in heaven. He's, he's forgotten about us. He sent us his spirit. He's given us the directions, but he's not really concerned about us. He is with us. He's with us every day. And not just when we're gathered together, but most, most definitely when we're gathered together in his name, where his church, we're gathered together for specific God-honoring, spiritually uh, sanctified, eternal purposes. So again, when we gather together for church, it's not just something we do because uh, good grief, we're, we're good people. No, we do it because we need each other. We need to be uh, uh, lined up under the authority of Christ. We need to speak the truth to one another for the sake of Christ himself. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for Christ and the gift of life in his name. We know that without Christ, we are nothing. And without Christ's sacrificial death, we have every expectation of judgment and condemnation from you, a just judgment. But you are so merciful, you're so kind to lavish your grace upon us for forgiveness of sins, for a sanctification growing in righteousness and holiness practically, and having that great hope that in that future day, you will come and you will receive us to yourself. Wow, wow. Remember in that picture, the shepherd will... Uh, carry, gently carry the the babes in his arms close to his bosom. We're just, we look forward to that day. Please help us to practically work that out right now, to live that out, that we have that access before you. I mean, we can't sit right down in your lap yet, but we look forward to that day when that will be reality. But right now, we're so grateful that you've given us your spirit, given us your scripture, given us each other to love and enjoy and to grow with. Please help us to do that for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.